these guys had to build their own equipment, develop their own films, write their films, direct their films, act in their movies, and then find commercial outlets for their movies. I mean, they literally did everything. It's extraordinary what those guys were able to accomplish, how much they immediately grasped what cinema could be, and they helped to define for American film what American film is. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Giving voice to the silent. Scholar Andrew A. Arish tells the untold story of the studio that invented the modern movie studio. And it's none of the ones you'd think. Plus Ben Modell on the silent films of a very recognizable voice. And Stephen Horn's album of music inspired by silent sirens. Heed the call of irresistible voices. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel the urge, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Once upon a time, there was a very ordinary kingdom full of very ordinary people. They were so ordinary that they would have found life very dull indeed if it weren't for just one extraordinary girl named Beauty. When do you think you were aware of Edward Everett Horton? Well, uh, most probably from the uh, RKO musicals with Fred Astaire. Uh, and possibly possibly the fractured fairy tales. Yeah, I think someone must have made the connection for me between that voice and uh you know, the guy in the Fred and Ginger movies. Yeah, yeah, the the fussy guy who who uh, the buddy. Yeah. In all the Fred Astaire films and and uh you keep thinking, "Oh, he's going to wind up with Eric Bloor at some point." <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I said this on Nitrateville, but I feel like he's the first character actor that made me aware there was such a profession. You right. Know, that, that, like, if this guy gets in a movie, then the movie's going to be better. Yeah, he's a recognizable face and voice and personality, and uh, more so than some of the other people who pop out, like Alan Jenkins. Right. Um, <laughs> just, he's a very specific personality. I'm talking, as regular listeners no doubt recognized, with most frequent guest Ben Modell about his latest project, a collection of eight silent comedies starring the instantly recognizable character actor Edward Everett Horton, preserved at the Library of Congress and with musical accompaniment by Ben. Ben launched the project on Kickstarter in August of 2020, and more than 500 Kickstarter backers got their copies this month as it goes on sale from Amazon and other DVD sellers. I know that Horton was a, was in silent films because I've seen some things like Helen's Babies yeah. that he's in. 
Um, but you found a whole series of shorts that he starred in. I mean, how did you even find out about these? Well, I was. I think the first place I ever saw any of these was at Slapstick On. Uh, they were either shown in 35 millimeter prints or in 16. Uh, part of the story of the preservation of of the films uh, that was the preservation that was done in the early 1970s uh, by Richard Simonton. Richard Simonton is another unsung hero of film preservation. He was involved uh, with helping uh, take care of and preserve uh, a lot of the the Harold Lloyd films for for Harold Lloyd and uh, working with the estate. And so he was a guy who had his own film lab and did preservation work for the American Film Institute. And he acquired the nitrate negatives and prints of the the Horton shorts uh, sometime after Harold Lloyd's passing. And seeing that the prints were starting to deteriorate, uh, worked with uh, the AFI and I think uh, possibly the Library of Congress as well to secure funding to have him do the lab work to make safety preservation elements of these films. And at some point, uh, I think three of them were offered to Thunderbird films. So there are eight millimeter and 16 millimeter prints of three of them in varying qualities uh, that, that some collectors have. Uh, but they, I don't think they sold that many copies. And then I think when uh, Steve Massa and I were putting together one of our our comedy, uh, obscure comedy shorts programs at MoMA, uh, I think we programmed one of them because MoMA has a print of, uh, I think, behind the counter with foreign titles or something like that. So I knew that there were a couple of these things, but I didn't know a lot of the history uh, of the shorts them, themselves. But uh, I just remember seeing, you know, at least one of these at Slapstick kind of thing. Boy, these are really funny. And then years later, uh, you know, while uh, mining the vaults at the Library of Congress for DVD projects, it turns out, oh, there's a whole lot of these here. And, oh, they survive in really good quality. Yeah, so are, is this the entire series of eight films? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, it, so that's fortunate eight. that they all survived. Yeah. And we, the project was originally going to be for five of them because only five of them at the, at the time I launched the Kickstarter, as far as I knew, were complete. Um, but it turns out that of, the, uh, uh, of those eight, the other three uh, had survived complete. We just need to look a little harder uh, working on information we had gotten from uh, Richard Simonton about the way he preserved the films and uh, knowing that sometimes at any archive, uh, something may be mislabeled or miscatalogued or, or what have you, and just go look for something else. So, for instance, uh, the film Find the King, uh, we thought we weren't going to be able to include it because there was a 1,000-foot roll of negative, which had been scanned, and we looked at it, oh, it's just chunks of the film. And, you know, what we knew from the catalog at, at Library of Congress is there was a thousand foot roll of positive and negative. And I just I don't I can't remember why I this popped into my head. But I thought, oh, but but Richard did a really thorough job of saving everything from the emails he and Steve Massa and I had had with him. And I and I wrote to 
to uh, I think Rob Stone and George Willman and 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 Lin, and Schweighoffer, who was really the person at Library of Congress who was really behind you, telling me, no, we don't have just one or two shorts; we have the whole series. Uh, I said, I wonder if the real of po- the role of positive is not a print of the negative. And sure enough, uh, George went back and found it, and and uh, it turns out the real of positive was a preservation from a positive print and not the ne- negative to fill out the deteriorated sections of the negative. Hmm. So we put Humpty Dumpty back together again by checkerboarding the two elements. And now we had another short and there was another one like, um, well, there was one that, uh, that has the, the one that sustained the most, uh, nitrate decomp. Uh, but there was quite a bit that, uh, Ben Solovey of Or origins archival was able to, able to bring back, and it's not, you know, it's not like watching a film that was found in Dawson City. It's there are little spots, uh, but the film's still entertaining. So we were able to include all eight of the films, uh, so you can see all eight of, Hort- of the films uh, Edward Everett Horton made. So the, all this detective work is in the service of something that was just floated on Kickstarter, and backed by people at Nitrateville and people on your mailing list and anybody else who yeah, a lot knows of people about on twi- what you do. Yeah, people on Twitter. And and I think a lot of it, it, we had 563 people pledged to the Kickstarter. It's about 200 more than I've had before. It funded in you know eight or eight or nine hours. And I think a lot of that is a, not only my mailing list and social media, especially Twitter, but the silent comedy watch party, we have, you know, 500 screens. So that's more like 800 people are watching live every week. And then uh, by the end of the week, uh, each episode logs around 1500, 1800 views. So there are a lot of people who pledge to this for the first time ever. And then we had a lot of people who were repeats uh, from all over the U.S., all over the planet. Well, let's talk about the uh, the actual films themselves. This was sure. produced. They were produced at Paramount. They were produced. They were not. They were released by Paramount. Okay. They were produced by Harold Lloyd. His name is not on there. Uh, you know, it just says Hollywood Productions presents. But if you read the the credit titles, it's all the people who worked on the Lloyd films. And Walter London uh, is the cinematographer. Uh, J James Howe is with the director on most of them. Uh, uh, T.J. Chrysler's. I mean, this all, you watch a lot of Harold Lloyd films, you'll recognize a lot of the crew. And some of the films are smaller uh, scale, where it's just five or six people in a couple of sets. And then you have something like Dad's Choice or Horseshy, where there's definitely money up on the screen. Uh, the, the number of extras that, especially in the first half of Dad's Choice, uh, is really... It's really striking in the production values and and in some of the locations uh, will be recognized by Harold Lloyd fans. The, the ending of Dad's Choice is the same train station, probably the same train tracks uh, that you see in uh, Get Out and Get Under. And uh, John Bankson has already recognized that uh, the trolley sequence in Vacation Waves is the same streets as uh, the trolley sequence in uh for heaven's sake which was made the year or a year and a half before before it now what's horton's personality like in these it's remarkably just like what it is that we know from the sound films is a persona this is the thing that steve massa uh has has discovered and and researched uh, there's a really nice nine minute uh video essay that crystal Kai uh put together with steve 
uh, on the DVD in lieu of a booklet, which I think is a better way to go because it's you don't have to get out a magnifying glass to read it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but what what Steve discovered is that Horton had a long uh, career on the stage, and had already developed this this persona that we know him for. And like Fields, uh, seeing it in a silent film, we know what it sounds like, but we think that's so weird to put W.C. Fields in a silent film. But Fields had already had that persona worked out, you know, in the Ziegfeld Follies and, and from years in vaudeville. It was the same thing with Horton. He had done a lot of stage work, and uh, a lot of people think he's from England. <laughs> he's from yeah. Brooklyn, but he, he just developed that persona. So by the time he gets into pictures, he's already playing. He's already that guy. Yeah. And what's fun in the comedy shorts is that not only – do you hear his voice? But a lot, there are a number of the intertitles that that are written the way he would deliver lines or say things in films we know him from in the 30s and 40s. So they're writing for his established stage persona. It, it, it would seem so. I mean, without a working time machine, I don't know. We know so little about 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 this uh, and how they came to be made. Uh, but it does appear that way. There are. You know, the, you know, he's in the middle of a big bar fight in a saloon. He says in the middle of, of this fist fight, I, I don't understand your meaning, you know, in, in a title <laughs> song. And there's, there's a, I think it's in Call Again where a bunch of sorority girls are sneaking him in and out of their, 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 their sorority house and trying to get him out of a window or something. He says something to them like, to the effect of, uh, no, what's, you know, make, you know, come up with something. He said, I'm no racehorse. You know, (laughs) you can just hear him say these and it's not like we're interpolating his voice onto just a regular comedy title. I mean, the wording on some of them does really sound like the way he would deliver lines. This is another story of forgotten gems that were saved by somebody and have been uh, cared for in an archival vault and through... Uh, both my interest in Steve's and Lenann's and Rob Stone's and George Williman's and then sharing the 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 information with fans who then took up the interest of getting something out uh, again. Uh, it's it's something I've enjoyed being able to do over the last I mean, this is my 24th release on through Undercrank Productions uh, since 2013. And can, it keeps working and and it's it's a, it's a, it's been uh fun to be part of part of the the flow it's very easy and as is the person who runs nitrateville you know it's very easy to complain about why doesn't so and so do this and why don't they just put this out and it's a lot of work it's money uh and a lot of uh, and there's a certain amount of uh how the presentation is put together and how it's gotten out there so that the maximum number of people can get it and that it looks attractive to people. Um, but it, it isn't, you know, even, even for something like this, this is the, my projects take anywhere from eight or nine months and this one took closer to 12 months. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll blame COVID for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, everybody just worked at a different speed as, as it has been the case with absolutely everything. Um, but uh, it, you know, just because a film archive has something doesn't mean that you, as much as you think, oh, I, it it resides there. I should be able to click on something and watch it. Um, it's not that simple. And uh, but if if you 
try to find a wormhole and make it open up. It, it is possible to, to do that. And I think the other thing to talk about maybe is, you know, uh, physical media versus streaming and where things are going with that. We don't really know, but I don't think physical media is, is going away. Uh, it may be for people who only do, you know, pressed product, you know, replicated product, uh, because of the same thing that I researched when I started all this several years ago of, you know, you have to make X amount of copies if it's pressed, and then you have to hope you sell all of them. You have to put those DVDs or Blu-rays somewhere, and you have to be on top of shipping it to Amazon. And if you have to, uh, in order to get on more platforms than just Amazon, then you have to be a certain kind of, I mean, it, it just gets bigger and bigger, and it's just not that simple. And so um, the fan-funded, uh, the you know, the crowd-funded by fans and manufacturer-on-demand uh, workflow does seem to be an effective way of helping uh, un unknown, uh, undeservedly overlooked gems of the silent or even sound era make their way from, from as I say, film cans to film fans. Needless to say, the music in this segment was by Ben Modell for his collection of silent comedies with Edward Everett Horton. Links for the collection at online DVD sellers will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thomas Edison invented the movies. D.W. Griffith invented directing. Adolf Zucker invented feature films, Carl Lemley invented the star system, and Max Sennett invented comedy. And as Firesign Theater said, everything you know is wrong. The story of the rise of film as an art form and a big business has many more subtleties to it than those simple firsts. And it has key players who have been forgotten along the way especially if they don't have a surviving corporate entity to keep their memory alive. Vitagraph survived only as the Vita in Vitaphone, once Warner Brothers bought them out in 1925. But for nearly 30 years before that, Vitagraph had been one of the most important and busiest studios in the world. And along the way, they pioneered much about the movies and the modern studio system. That's the story that Andrew A. Arish tells in his new book, Vitagraph, America's first great motion picture studio, from the University Press of Kentucky. Arish, who taught film for many years in California and now lives in Florida, is the author of a previous book on Colonel William Selig, and programmed a Selig retrospective at Portnone. I started by asking him why he's so interested in long-gone studio pioneers. Mike, I think I'm like you 
and the Nitrateville audience at large, we've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> we've seen tons. We've seen more movies than most people have. And you kind of get to the point as you get older, you feel like I've seen everything that's out there that's available. What haven't I seen? And I started to look earlier and earlier at stuff that just doesn't get shown. Um, I wrote a newspaper article for the LA Times about the exploitation film Ngagi uh, <laughs> back in 25. I know you did a, a, a podcast about back. that. Yeah. yeah. And while I'm doing the research on that, I'm reading about how it's staged at the Selig Zoo. And I'm trying to find everything I can about Colonel Selig, and there just wasn't much out there. And then I find out he's the first guy to donate his papers to the Motion Picture Academy, and no one's ever bothered to look at them. Hmm. And I start to look, and they're voluminous. And all of a sudden, there's a whole new film history out there that runs contrary to everything we've ever been taught. As I'm doing the Selig research, Vitagraph is showing up all over the place because they were the biggest company in America and eventually the world uh, concurrent with Colonel Selig. And when I finished the Selig project, um, I thought, you know, Anthony Slide wrote a really good overview of Vitagraph, um, but it's only 100 pages long. And I want to know more. Uh, it piqued my curiosity doing the Selig research and reading Anthony Slide's book. Uh, there's got to be a lot more to this story, and I decided to jump in. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about Vitagraph. I mean, I think if people know any name associated with it, it's a vague awareness of J. Stuart Blackton, but not really mm -hmm. knowing much about him. Who yeah. are the main people at Vitagraph, and tell me about them. Well, the two founders are Blackton and Albert Smith, and they're both uh, British-born into poor families. Uh, their families emigrated to the U.S. when the guys were around maybe 10 years old. Um, you know, like every other immigrant family seeking a better life here um, than what they had back in England. They didn't know each other in England. They lived maybe 300 miles from each other there. But um, they met at a house party in Harlem around 1893-94 and um, quickly found out uh, they were pretty much on their own as kids. Uh, by this point, uh, Smith is living by himself as a teenager, and Blackton's responsible for his uh, widowed mother and infant brother and an aunt. Um, and these guys are about, you know, 15, 16 years right. old. They want to be vaudeville entertainers. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you want to be a I want to be a So do I. And their friend that introduced them wanted to be a vaudeville entertainer, too. So, hey, let's, all the three of us, let's put an, an evening's entertainment together and go out as a fully contained unit. We can make more money that way if people will book us as a full evening's entertainment than we could going out individually as a solo act and getting a little bit of work here and there. And they did it. And a, a year or two into that, um, and they're getting booked on small-time vaudeville circuits, um, specifically a circuit called the Chautauqua, which was affiliated with uh, Christian churches and uplift groups. And the Lyceum circuit, which was not um, religiously affiliated, but kind of had similar goals, general uplift, pre uh, presenting 
entertainment and culture and information um, in a, a family-friendly setting. And these guys were successful. They got bookings, you know, coming out of nothing. And and Blackton's a illustrator. He did a rapid chalk talk. He would draw first in chalk uh, people in the audience and celebrities of the day. And then he changed to ink and was drawing, you know, characters from the neighborhood or notable politicians or celebrities, sporting figures. And Smith was a magician. And 1895, they're walking down, I think it was Broad Street in Lower Manhattan, and one of the first Edison kinetoscope parlors had just opened. And they wandered in, and they peeped into one of these viewing cabinets, and instantly, we got to do this. They both, uh, this is blowing their minds, this is the future if for nothing else to supplement our vaudeville act. But these guys are so poor, it took them a year to be able to afford a projector and a handful of films, and then a little more time to uh, acquire a camera that Smith started to make improvements on, and they went out and started shooting their own stuff. And uh, unlike all of the latter moguls of Hollywood, these guys, uh, like Colonel Selig um, and Sigmund Lubin, had to build their own equipment, develop their own films, uh, write their films, direct their films, act in their movies, and then find commercial outlets for their movies. I mean, they literally did everything. And they taught the first generation of craftspeople, specific craftspeople, how to do their jobs. And they did it really well. Um, it's extraordinary what those guys were able to accomplish, how much they immediately grasped what cinema could be. And they helped to define for American film what American film is. And we take it all for granted today. Yeah, no, I thought that was, it was interesting and even a little heartwarming reading about them you know, just thinking of ways to play with this thing and see what yeah. else it could do. Uh, the animation comes to mind because that's, you know, certainly among the more famous things that they ever did. You know, we've Absol we've all absolutely. run across, you know, uh, now I can't remember what is it, funny phases. Oh, humorous uh, phases of funny faces. There we go, that thing. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those novelties that you're going to see somewhere at some point. Right. Um, but that's really what they're doing. I mean, you talk about writing and acting and directing, but you know, at this early point, those are all sort of theoretical concepts to them. I mean, they're just making novelties. And they are, but they're they're also thinking ahead because they're at the forefront. And you know, in the beginning, it's movement for the sake of movement. Yeah. So, what kind of movement for the sake of movement hasn't the audience seen yet? And then they're at the forefront of of understanding that audiences are starting to want more than that. They want stories. So, what are the kinds of stories that people are going to respond to? And these guys. Being the age they were, they were both born in 1875. They're young men at the beginning of this. They represent so many other young people in America at that point, either immigrants or first-generation Americans who really want the American dream, are full of piss and vinegar and <laughs> ready to go. And 
their sensibilities reflected those of their audience. And that's huge. You know, most movies, the audience for any given time, they want to see themselves reflected in the stories they pay their money to see. And that was certainly one of Vitagraph's strong points, um, was uh, kind of capturing the zeitgeist of um, the early 20th century, better than anybody else for a long time. Now, there's one other figure who comes into the picture early on, and he's not a young man, and no. that, and hence his nickname, Pop Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was Pop Rock, and what was his importance to the story? Pop Rock was quite a character, even then. If, you know, they would have called him quite a character. Um, he was a guy who dabbled in a lot of things. He was kind of like the later moguls in that regard. He had other businesses that he was involved in before he got involved in movies. Um, But once he did, he bought the territorial rights for Edison's kinetoscope for the state of Louisiana. And he opened the first, what we would call Nickelodeon in New Orleans in uh, late eight, uh, early 1896, um, I believe on Canal Street. And he had amazing success opening a dedicated theater space just for movies. And it was the prototype for the Nickelodeons that um, started to spring up 10 years later, uh, first in Pittsburgh. And Pop Rock made a fortune. And he was uh, canny enough to understand that people were as mesmerized by the technology as they were by what they were seeing on screen And he charged, I believe, five cents to come in and see the movies, but he charged 50 cents to take a tour of the projection booth and to get an (laughs) explanation of how it worked. And he made an awful lot of money doing that. And uh, after a year, he came back to New York. Um, He was an immigrant from England as well as a kid, but had settled in New York, came back to New York. And he had collected films from uh, mostly foreign filmmakers uh, from England and France, uh, mostly. And he was selling films to all the early exhibitors. And Blackton and Smith had obtained some vaudeville contracts. And under contract, you had to supply new films every week um, for your vaudeville Um, turn, which was maybe about 15 minutes. Live entertainment for an hour and 45 minutes and the last 15 minutes, a program of new movies. So uh, Rock uh, is is called upon by Blackton and Rock is kind of bragging about how many hundreds of French and British films he has. Blackton's bragging about the operation that he and Smith have in lower Manhattan. They bring Rock down to show off their operation. And Rock, you know, quickly understands these guys are babes in the woods when it comes to business. I could take these guys for a ride. And and initially that was what he planned to do. And then he thought, no, I want to be a part of this. These guys have their finger on something that's going to explode. And I want to get hooked up with this. He had resources, financial resources. And he also had contacts. He was a uh, 
kind of a rough and tumble character. He hung out with the guys that knew the outcomes of horse races <laughs> before the horse races were run. And he knew politicians and things like that. Um, and Thomas Edison was suing the pants off of uh, Blackton and Smith, just as he was everyone else from the get-go, um, trying to either drive them out of business or basically take over their business or a large chunk of their um, profit. So it was a mutually attractive partnership, and he was brought in as the Rock was brought in as the third partner, uh, and it worked out great. And he's the guy that found the most amazing exhibition outlets for Vitagraph. Uh, my favorite being uh, a company called the Kickapoo Medicine Company <laughs> out of Connecticut. They were sending out uh, medicine shows. They made this patent medicine that was like 92% alcohol. Right. And they would send uh, people out to small towns and rural areas in America that didn't get much entertainment. And they would uh, either stop at crossroads or stop on the main street of a small town and gather a crowd around together. And they had initially started uh, with live entertainers to draw a crowd. And then the, uh, you know, Spieler would come out and try to sell everybody this patent medicine. They found out that uh, Pop Rock said, look, you don't have to hire as many people to go with you if you show our movies. So much of rural and small town America saw their first movies through these Kickapoo medicine shows that were all Vitagraph stuff. Huh. It's just, you know, it's where do we, how can we show these? Where are right. the venues for these things? It's, it's creative thinking yeah. outside the box when there was no box, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I thought was so interesting. I mean, it, it's so low rent in certain ways. It's just, yeah. you know, are we going to make a movie, grab your friends and start running on the street and we have a movie and then next Tuesday we'll have another movie. Um, but they got good contracts. I mean, they were showing, they were the, movie end of t at Tony Pastors, which is you know, right. the most well, famous they, vaudeville house. I just absolutely. saw in some movie, like two kids trying to get into Tony Pastors. I can't remember what movie it was, but you know, some like forties musical or whatever. Yeah. It's like, there's a yeah. name that stuck around for years. It was legendary. And they had the contract at Tony Pastors for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, which was huge. It was the ultimate contract for vaudeville. At that point, it's just interesting as they're they're sort of groping toward figuring out what this business is, and it does seem like pop rock. I mean, they didn't particularly like him. Or, you know, later on, they open an office in New York to keep him away from the studio in Brooklyn. But uh, you know, even so, I think he seems pretty essential that they would have been wiped Absolutely. out financially at some point, Absolutely. or swindled I out of it. Yep. Albert Smith always acknowledged that, and he did have a good relationship with Rock. Uh, Blackton didn't. Um, Rock hated Blackton's guts, and I think the feeling was mutual. Uh, and the problem was Rock was not a creative person. Right. So when they were making movies on a rooftop in lower Manhattan, uh, Rock was getting in the way. So when they opened the Brooklyn studio in Flatbush, it's like we're gonna keep we're gonna keep Rock downtown away from Brooklyn and you know but but he he served a great function developing relationships with uh, individual theater owners exhibitors 
And that was as important as anything. Smith always uh, acknowledged that. Well, Blackton, I mean, it kind of reminded me of Disney in the way that, you know, it's like, hey, we got a good thing going. Great. Now I'm going to try something completely different and bet the whole studio on on something that people have never seen before. He's just doing that, you know, for a long time is pretty successful at expanding the bounds of what it is that movie entertainment is. You know, in the early time, um, it's interesting because Blackton and Smith each had their own kind of production units, and they each had uh, kind of different sem- uh, um, sensibilities. So Blackton tended to make uh, what we would call artsy films, or even, um, they used the term back then, pretentious films, in trying to attract um, people that thought, Movies were beneath them. Um, and as a social climbing immigrant, um, Blackton wanted to be accepted into higher society. And he thought he could attract higher society by making movies that appealed to them. So it was Blackton did so many things right, but he made a few missteps along the way. He decided, well, let's let's make a whole bunch of Shakespeare movies. So if you think that um, a 15-minute-long condensation of Shakespeare with no dialogue is a bad idea, you would be correct. (laughs) Um, I think they made 12 Shakespeare's altogether, and 11 of them are pretty dreadful. Um, The only good one is A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it's it's not only good, it's really good. Um, It's the one time Blackton got it right, and his creativity is all over the place it's and it was shot in uh, prospect park in brooklyn and it's just a wonder it's still entertaining to this yeah. day and so many of vitagraph's um movies still are which separates them from um the other pre-griffith people in that there is a sophistication going on um a kind of as they're developing the language of film um, in ways that Griffith wasn't, and you kind of mesh the two together. And that's essentially, we're still using the same grammar to this day. Well, and also, I mean, to me, the, the comparison is what Edison was doing, since Edison is, you know, entangled with their business in various ways, sometimes allegedly in a friendly manner, sometimes quite hostile, yeah. um, pretty much always really hostile deep down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, tell me about, you know, where they fall in the whole patents trust and, you know, Edison enforcement thing. You know, that, that Mike, that story hasn't really been properly told. There's so much misinformation about that in uh, all the film history books. As it turns out, um, as I said earlier, Edison's suing everyone from the very beginning, and he hires detectives to spy on people from the very beginning to either intimidate them into stopping and hiring lawyers to do that or to get a huge um, chunk of their profit um, in order to uh, allow them to make movies because Edison was claiming – patents that weren't his but he had the name and he had the legal muscle and courts were pretty much falling in line with whatever Edison said so it kind of came to a head at at a certain point um, 
Vitagraph at a couple of different points, it looked like Vitagraph wasn't going to make it. There were some early filmmakers that um, were competitors that lasted a year or two, and they just couldn't hang in there. And one of the benefits of having pop rock along. Um, but in around 1907, late 1907, the courts in Chicago finally ruled that Colonel Selig was in violation of all these Edison patents and Selig was ordered not only to shut down immediately, but to pay retroactively everything he earned for movies to Edison. And the other filmmakers knew that if Selig was in violation, they were too. So Blackton was at the forefront of, okay, how do we make this thing work? How do we work it out? Edison's lawyers said, the only way this is going to work uh, we're not bad guys. We want you guys to stay in business. All you have to do is pay us a percentage, not of your profit, but of every frame of film that rolls through your camera. You have to pay us a large percentage on that. You also have to allow us to control the distribution of your films. And we'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. As it turns out, the Edison forces controlling distribution in the so-called trust um, basically saw to it that Edison took 50% at least of all of the other filmmakers' uh, money so that Vitagraph and the others were basically breaking even domestically after Edison got his cut, and they weren't making the real money in this country, they were making it with their international distribution uh, because Edison couldn't control anything outside of the U.S. And Vitagraph was the first to open up offices in London and Paris, and their films became preferred not only in England and France, but in Italy and Germany, and it just mushroomed all over the world. They started pulling in a uh, million dollars a year in foreign profit and they were charging an awful lot less for movies outside the United States than they were in this country. Um, so in, in my rough calculations, I think they were probably doing twice the business in the U S uh, so they were probably losing maybe $2 million in profit a year um, to Edison. It, it's just ridiculous. And they were still making so much money that they were surviving that anyway and prospering. Uh, it's a testament to how truly big they became. And, and probably more than any other filmmaker, they set the tone and the preference for American movies internationally that still exists in many parts of the world. You know, so what he, was what was better about their films at that point? And we're talking like what 1910, 1912. In yeah, yeah, sure. I, I would say starting around uh, 1907, they really start to distinguish themselves. Even late 1906, um, the French were kind of the first to pick up on that. They started to name uh, essential things about the movies. Uh, after Vitagraph, that uh, terms that they use today. I don't speak French, so I would <laughs> butcher the pronunciations. Um, but when they built their first studios in Brooklyn, um, starting at the end of 1905 and completed in 1906, 
all of a sudden you were able to control the light. And the idea initially was to have an evenly lit space with no harsh light like you got filming outside before then, before there were indoor studios, um, to have uh, glass ceilings that evenly diffuse the light and all that. But I think Blackton, because he had been a trained painter, um, understood the importance of light and shadow in creating dramatic effects and all that. And they started doing the most amazing, really beautiful, aesthetically pleasing cinematography uh, before anyone else in this country, uh, for sure. And their studios were built in such a way, and this was probably Albert Smith more than Blackton, uh, with very deep stages. And they came upon a formula that they called the nine-foot line rule, where they put the camera nine feet from the main um, action in any given frame. And you had a because of the lighting, you had a depth of focus going on. So you could have multiple planes of action going on within the same frame. And they did that not only in the studio, but in exteriors as well. So you're having things happening in the foreground and in the background and sometimes in the middle ground that are such so much more sophisticated in terms of the storytelling. And they understood movement within the frame and having a moving frame as well. Um, I know that you had um, the author of the uh, Costello family book on right. uh, your podcast. And one of the great things that Maurice Costello did was he understood that the closer he moved to the camera, the smaller his actions needed to be. So he became very subtle in his physicality especially as he would move closer. You didn't need to cut to a close-up. You would find natural ways to move within a frame to do that. And uh, I've always thought that a longer take gives a greater sense of reality, of verisimilitude to what you're looking at. It's happening in real time. If your production design is really good, it's as if you're experiencing something as it's happening. If you cut a lot, if you're moving the camera around for the sake of moving it, it's kind of showing off the uh, tricks of cinema, and it sometimes gets in the way of a story. And and Vitagraph was very um, precise about how they conceived of, of uh, kind of uh, defining action within a frame, a dramatic action or comedic action, whatever. Just brilliant. And those films, how you light it, how you act it, what your production design looks like, um, it's absolutely amazing. And the same is true for their outdoor, um, you know, primarily outdoor adventure dramas as well. Um, they hold, they, so many of them hold up really well. Well, you mentioned Morris Costello. And, I mean, that's the, another thing, a really important thing, is that they were developing stars yeah. really before the people who usually get the credit for that, like Adolf Zucker getting Sarah yeah. Bernhardt and things like that. Right. I mean, they're – or the whole – I mean, they're who he stole one of the Florences from. I forget which. 
and made her the imp girl. Actually, it was uh, it was first D.W. Griffith stole Florence Lawrence to become the Biograph girl. Uh, Okay. And then Carl Lemley stole Florence Lawrence to become the imp girl. Right. But they kept calling her the biograph girl, and it was driving Carl Lemley nuts. So he was like, no, this is the imp girl. I've got to define this for the public. She's imp now. She's imp. But long before that happened, Florence Turner was the vitagraph girl, and she's getting male uh, – there's an interview with her around 1909, I think, 1909 or 1910, and she's getting 3,000 letters a week from all <laughs> over the world. Yeah. And they were initially addressed to the Vitagraph girl. And the company is smart enough to go, you know, we used to be able to sell our films to exhibitors just on the strength of our brand name. Knowing it's a Vitagraph was enough. But we're getting so much mail for Florence Turner and Costello. It makes sense to advertise them because that can be an even bigger, it can transcend the brand name. And it certainly did. And with their stars, they went out of their way to uh, promote them. And in such ways, uh, this is another Blackton achievement. Uh, he single-handedly developed the first fan magazine, movie fan magazine in America. And he wanted to promote all everyone's movies evenly. Uh, There was an equitable distribution of space in the pages, but people kept, you know, wanting more and more Vitagraph. And, um, you know, the Vitagraph stars were clearly more popular than any of the other ones. Um, Blackton also started in in tandem with uh, the Pathé Company, the first trade magazine in the United States devoted strictly to the movies. Um, We take all that stuff for granted, but these guys understood the importance of this business to the business of movies and to um, satisfying fans that wanted to learn more about the people they saw on screen. I can't tell you how huge that is. And they were so successful that imitators sprang up. You know, Photoplay magazine is a better known magazine these days because it lasted well into the 60s. Um, But they wouldn't have started had it not been for the earlier motion picture story magazine um, that they were kind of aping that Blackton had started. Well, and then the other thing that seems such an essential part of developing the movies is moving toward feature films. And they're also in the forefront of that at the same time that that Zucker is making longer films and whoever else. Well, even before Zucker made long films, they're making, and then, you know, didn't stop Zucker from taking credit and people believing him. (laughs) Right. Biographers still publishing these claims by Zucker and Fox and Lemley and on and on and on. Um, They were, Vitagraph and Selig, um, especially, were thwarted early on in their attempts to make longer films because Nickelodeon operators said the audience isn't going to stand still for long films. Just give us 15 minute long films. How dare you give me a half an hour film or a 45 <laughs> minute or an hour film? That this we will not show these. And they got skittish for a little bit for a couple of years. 
And then around 1910, it's like, no, there are stories that we really need to, if we're going to tell them properly, we need more time to do it and we'll take our chances. And they started to put those longer films out. And then in 1911, they do a, Phytograph does a three-reel version of A Tale of Two Cities. And it just blew people away. And it wasn't, it's interesting with that film, that wasn't necessarily to make money on A Tale of Two Cities. Any other movie company that's ever put out a movie, commercial company, it's about making money for that movie. But Vitagraph used that as much as a test case to say to exhibitors, under the current contracts, the way that they're um, written, let's say you're in Chicago. Let's say there's a, there's a, a, a theater on State Street that gets real one on Tuesdays. There's a theater on Michigan that gets real two on Thursdays. And there's a theater on the south side of Chicago that gets real three of this three real movie a couple days after that. They put out, Vitagraph puts out notices saying, do not take this movie on its first run. By the terms of the contract, you can get all three reels on its second run. We're not going to make the money, but you can show all three reels at the same time. And you can charge more money because it's a three reel film. And we promise you people are going to come. And that's exactly what happened. And it emboldened them to really start to push the envelope much further than that. And it kind of destroyed the argument that the exhibitors were making about no one would sit through a longer film. And the reason they did that was the audience was used to coming and going whenever they wanted to. Right. There was no set time advertised. This movie is going to start at this moment and this is going to start at this hour. They would you know, show multiple short films and people came and went as they wanted to. And they thought with longer films, we can't do a big turnover of audience the way we're used to. They're going to sit there too long. It's going <laughs> to kill us. We're not going to make as much money. And the ultimately, that exhibition business had to change with the longer, you know, hour long and then two hour long movie. And they made even more money with that. But they were too short sighted to see that. Whereas, you know, Vitagraph saw it clearly and they ended up renting their own theater, Broadway theater in Times Square, to show their features um, because it was they, they couldn't get people to cooperate with their vision. And they had so much success, they renamed the Criterion Theater, the Vitagraph Theater, for under a two-year lease. And it was phenomenally successful. And, and you know, the rest – and then Badolf Zucker says, I suddenly had this vision of the feature film. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's destroyed a lot of uh, incredible this, film. History. This vision as I was leaving a long movie, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so Vitagraph in the early teens. I mean, they got uh, Costello was a star. They've got John Bunny by that point, and, and as you say, they're they're the they're the busiest and most successful producer at that point. Yeah. So what are they cranking out? They're cranking out, let's say by 1912, they're cranking out about seven short films a week, which are one to two reels and one feature film a week, which is anywhere from three reels to five reels long, uh, 45 minutes to 
maybe an hour and a half. That is just a huge output for even a modern production company. Um, You you just can't imagine. So they had um, at their height, maybe 25 production units working simultaneously. They ended up opening a um, second huge studio in Los Angeles, um, initially in Santa Monica, and then they moved it to uh, inland to East Hollywood to uh, what's called the Los Feliz neighborhood today. And this is at the same time the Brooklyn Studios cranking everything out. They they couldn't make movies fast enough. They were employing uh, at that point about 800 people, um, and they were all specialized craftspeople. Production designers, cinematographers, laboratory technicians, on and on and on. You name it. Um, and these people worked at a very high level. That you know, uh, Smith and Blackton set a very high standard for their employees. And the great thing about it was, uh, almost without exception, the employees loved it. They all looked back. Many of them went on to work with other studios. And all of the comments I ever found of any of the old Vitagraph employees said, this was the best place, the best time I ever had in my professional life was working for Vitagraph. They were treated like family. Um, There's uh, so many wonderful stories about um, how everyone came together and had fun while they're doing, you know, kind of creating this stuff as it's happening, you know, creating what movies are going to be. Now, World War One comes along, yeah. and they lose the European market, and it really kind of seems like things don't really go right for them ever again after that point. Uh, they get a, a new partner who comes in promising, this is weird, money from American tobacco that will help yeah. them gear up, which never really materializes. Not a penny. Yeah, and... Uh, there's also a distribution outlet that they go into with some of the other studios, VLSE. I'm not going to yes. remember who all yeah. four of those are, yeah. but it's Vitagraph. Who is it? Vitagraph, Vitagraph Lupin, Selig, and SNA. Okay. And that's successful. Maybe that kind of keeps them afloat, doesn't it? The it distribution. does. It's, it's so successful that the plan was, you know, with these three other companies, they go into the distribution of features. It was – each of us supplies a, a big two-hour feature um, per month. That's easy, right? right. <laughs> and other companies weren't doing it. They weren't living up to the agreement. So exhibitors like, hey, I've been promised a new Lubin or a new Sealy or a new SNA. What's happening? So Vitagraph is filling that void, and they're like, this is ridiculous. They bought out their partners, um, I think, after about a year or so. And they controlled this distribution network that not only covered the United States and all of Canada, they expanded that to cover most of the world. So they had um, a great distribution. They basically controlled distribution in England and uh, throughout um, the United Kingdom. Uh, In France as well, uh, they did great Great work in uh, Italy. Italians came to prefer Vitagraph movies as well. And this is at the height of Italian silent cinema. Um, 
where they're doing great work, you know. And then because of World War I, they start to open up other markets. So they open up Central and South America and they open up Asia. Um, there are letters from Africa and Siberia saying, we love these Vitagraph movies. Um, John Bunny was the first American movie actor of note to go to Europe and make films on location. He, they made a, a version of um, the Pickwick Papers. Which um, he could not be more perfect for. He could not be more. And it was his dream. And, you know, the three films that they made are good films. And you only wish, why didn't he go back? And why didn't they just let him do the whole book? It's so good. Um, he gets mobbed. He finds out he's known as, uh, in Russia, he's known as uh, Poxen was the nickname that they gave him. He's not known as John Bunny. But he's known as Poxen. In France, he's known as Monsieur Cinema. I mean, he's just—he is as big as it gets. He's the first American comedian, and the, his only rival at that time was Max Linder uh, of France. He's also the first movie star and movie comedian to die at the height of his fame. Right. And when he died um, suddenly, tragically, uh, it's really interesting how the obituaries around the world wrote about him. And some, I remember there's one obituary that says long, like front page articles and stuff. Um, we can, we can uh, rest assured that when our grandchildren look at John Bunny films, 50, 60 years from now, they'll know that we had good taste and we knew what was funny. <laughs> and uh, only one paper said, John Bunny presents an interesting case. Will his popularity on film exceed his lifespan? Will future generations find him as funny as we do? Um, that's a question remaining to be answered. And Chaplin quickly made everyone forget John Bunny. And that was that. The late teens go along uh, Blackton winds up breaking with uh, his o his own studio for a time, though he comes back to them eventually. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like, I mean, at this point, Adolf Zucker really seems determined to drive them out of business with really kind of gangster tactics. What yeah. was going on there? What did he? he you know, he, he was driving other people out of the business with gangster tactics too. Um, he wanted to control American movies, every aspect of it. So, you know, the, the movies, the business of movies is made up of three components, uh, production, distribution, and exhibition. And uh, there is a kind of an unfair um, historical uh, idea that the Edison Trust was this evil cabal of, of willing um, participants that tried to control all three aspects of the business and were ultimately thwarted uh, by the Supreme Court under the antitrust laws. Adolf Zucker knew that that wasn't exactly true, and he was actually going to try to do that. And he did do it for a number of years uh, because he started to purchase and build huge theater circuits. So Vitagraph was still putting out some pretty good movies, 
But uh, Zucker is controlling about 600 theaters by the early 20s. And he's telling some of the other big theater owners, don't um, exhibit Vitagraph movies. Let's put these guys out of business. He took over as top dog in the American production world. He didn't want to be reminded, and he didn't want Vitagraph to rem- remind anyone else that they had been there first and that they did everything that he started taking credit for. Uh, his ego was huge. You know, most people, whatever the business is, you're, you have competitors. It's a live and let live. I'm going to try to do the best I can, and hopefully I'll have the customers. In any business, there's always someone that's like, I'm going to uh, – destroy the competition. I want it <laughs> yeah. all for myself. For the movies, it was more Zucker than anyone else that was like that. Um, one of the great movies that Vitagraph made in the 20s was they made the first um, feature-length version of Black Beauty. And it got amazing reviews. It did really well wherever it was shown. Um, it played in Stockholm, um, about two years after it came out in America, it was the first movie that little Ingmar Bergman ever saw, <laughs> and it blew him away. And I, from that point on, he wanted to be involved in film, um, and he never forgot the movie. He was giving interviews in the late 60s and early 70s, and they'd say, what got you into this? I saw this movie, Black Beauty. There's this scene where there's a fire and horses i'll never forget it and he's describing it really well 50 years later it's amazing but that movie is is easily getting shown in sweden not so easily getting shown in america because zucker is is shutting the exhibition business off to vitagraph and ultimately albert smith was like i'm making really good movies here and i if i can't get it into theaters What's the point anymore? Yeah, it's curious. I mean, they did so well for so long without, it seems, having the business smarts that seem necessary to survive in in that business. Yeah, you know, I I came away believing that they really grew into um, smarter people business-wise than they were going in, but they certainly were no match for Zucker and um, some of the others. Yeah. And wind up selling it then to Warner Brothers, who used the the Vita name. I was just reading that apparently there's some Looney Tunes in the late 60s that are credited as Vitagraph releases just so they could make a more modern claim as to the, the trademark. Because any day now, Vitagraph may come back. Strictly, it was a lawyer's decision. Half of the Looney Tunes made between, I think, 1962 and when they shut it down completely around 1968 or 69, half of them in the end credits say a Vitagraph release. They resurrected that name. That's so uh, odd. That they owned when they bought the company Lock, Stock, and Barrel in 1925. Right. Um, All right. So... Looking at back at Vitagraph and its nearly 30-year run, I mean, w- what was important about it? Vitagraph was important for a couple of reasons, you know, that we've talked about. But briefly, they were at the forefront of developing film language. Um, there is so much that they did um, in terms of how to visually tell a story that 
is done to this day without people realizing that Vitagraph was the first one to frame a shot in this manner or to light a scene in this manner or to have their actors performing in this particular manner. Um, they were also huge in developing not only the business in the United States, but I think even more importantly, an international preference for American movies. They, um, you know, to a lesser extent, Selig, but Vitagraph by far, because they just got into places no one else was in uh, from America. And immediately audiences um, preferred Vitagraph movies and by extension, the American movies that came in their wake to the movies that their own countries were developing. And, you know, they were the first to um, open up a major studio with um, specialized craftspeople. The, the idea that the um, production system was started by Thomas Ince or Irving Thalberg um, is nonsense because Vitagraph had clearly set that up by 1907, 1908. Um, Partly because Morris Costello refused to paint sets. You know what? That's a huge part of it. I'm an actor. You shouldn't ask your actors to do this. It makes perfect sense. But it's also, as you're making so many movies, we have to get cameramen that know what they're doing. We need lighting people and electricians that can you know, effectively do their job. It just all kind of came together and they saw it before anybody else did um, and made it work. And then because they were the biggest, okay, we want to be like Vitagraph. We want to make the money they're making. What are they doing that we're not doing? So everyone starts to imitate the Vitagraph model. And you could make an argument that we're still imitating the Vitagraph model to this day without realizing that so much of that started with these guys. Yeah. And even the word studio for it as opposed to factory. Right. Was, was right. it or Smith's, plant. Yeah, plant. It, it, was it, it Smith's, Blackton's, Blackton's wife? Second, second wife. For their honeymoon, they went to Paris. The social climbing, we want to know how to behave in the upper echelons of society. Um, they saw that, you know, they toured artist studios and, uh, you know, the new Mrs. Blackton said, when you get back to Brooklyn, you will call this the studio, not the plant, not the factory, not the whatever. It's studio from now on. And Blackton kind of insisted on that through his wife. Um, and we all take just something as simple as that for granted. Irish's Vitagraph, America's first great motion picture studio, is out now from the University Press of Kentucky. Links to the book and a number of surviving Vitagraph films are in the show post at nitrateville.com. 
That's music by Stephen Horn, inspired by the 1925 film Variety. Horn is one of the best-known silent film accompanists in the UK, house pianist for screenings at the BFI South Bank in London, and a guest performer at festivals like Bologna, Pordenone, and San Francisco. In a guest post at the blog Silent London, he wrote that he's long wanted to record a set of piano pieces inspired by the movies he's scored. And so he's released Silent Sirens on the Ulysses Arts label, mostly featuring themes written for actresses who, he says, haunted him in the uniquely intimate way that silent film stars can. I spoke with him about this release from London. I've wanted to make an album of pure music for a long time. For about 30 years, I've pretty much exclusively concentrated on silent film music. So that's where the body of the content I've accumulated over the years has been focused. I have a whole lot of uh, melodies and musical ideas floating around associated with silent film. So I thought that was the obvious uh, place to start. But I didn't want to sort of release the CD that Stephen Horn plays music for silent films. Yeah. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, um, you know, it, it, that's been done by the people very well. So I thought I'd try and do something that's a little bit more sort of idiosyncratic. So at first I was just trying to develop self-contained piano pieces that used melodies from the scores I've written. And gradually a sort of an overall theme emerged, which was that a lot of the films, a lot of the melodies were associated in my mind with the sort of heroines of, of these films. Not all, but you know, more than half. So that felt like a nice sort of connecting theme. And we tend to call them the sirens of the screen. So silent sirens felt nicely alliterative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's more like I wanted to create something that had a kind of unified feel. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I wanted, I, I discovered, went back over my scores and just cherry picked what I thought were some of the strongest melodies. And I, I realized that I, I definitely have a sort of um, a comfort zone, um, which is slightly sort of melancholic, haunting, I guess modal and so i thought well you know let's just embrace that and at least have a, a record that has a sort of a feel to it so you, know, you you write complete scores every time you do a film no not at all um almost um very much from the other side of, I, I come perhaps yes brief history of what i of my approach yeah so i started late 80s um at the BFI, BFI South Bank. And in those days, uh, they never showed us the films before the screenings. Uh, we're talking sort of pre-DVD, let alone pre-internet. So quite often films would come at the last moment from foreign archives. And their previous pianists had just established a, a tradition of kind of rocking up and playing for things, you know, and for, which they hadn't seen before. So for about the first 10 years, just about everything I accompanied in a live show setting, that was the first time I'd seen that film. So I obviously, to be able to handle that situation, I had to be able to improvise. 
my improvisatory approach was established through necessity, really. Yeah. <laughs> Not to any kind of, um, you know, didactic principle. You know, I'd know something about the story if I was lucky, uh, the genre at least. I'd do some preparation, some practice, and come up with some ideas. But that's pretty much how I approached it. And then gradually, films became more available. And, you know, I would see the films in advance. And then I started to get commissioned to do recordings for DVDs and the occasional score rec- uh, commission. So it's, it's evolved into a more compositional approach okay. over the 30 years. Okay, but started with Trial by Fire. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the, very literally, actually, the very first film I ever accompanied, it wasn't that the BFI was for a local film society, but it was The Passion of Joan of Arc. Oh, okay. <laughs> Too soon. So that's quite a film. <laughs> yeah, quite a film to start with. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, in your essay at Silent London, you talk about discovering the power of these silent sirens when you were playing for a Louise Brooks film. Tell me about that. I described a very early experience I had right at the beginning of my career accompanying a Louise Brooks film. I, I'm not awfully sure which one it was, um, but where I had this sort of I guess it was a sort of a hallucination that I heard her talking to me. <laughs> um, it was one of those, you know, she was in a big close-up and I was playing and you know, it was a cinema, the lights were down and um, I I could tell what she was saying and in my mind it was like I was hearing her voice. I, I, I imagine all that was happening was I was lip-reading, you know, sometimes... Yeah. You've had the thing where you can tell what they're saying by by their you know the movement of their lips, but something about playing music at the same time while reading what she was saying from her from her lips um, it transformed it into um, to a voice in my head. So I've always had a slightly sort of um, um, haunted sort of association with Louis Brooks. Peter um, uh the, the particular approach that I take with that is I try to incorporate elements from the sound version into my accompaniment because I actually saw the sound version first. Hmm. So although I think the silent version works better, the big element that it lacks is the final song. That, are you familiar with the... Yeah, yeah, I've, the, seen, I've seen it a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, so you know the last scene, if you watch the silent version, the scene is intact, she's singing, but you're not hearing the song. Right. So my approach, which may be borderline illegal, um, <laughs> is to play the, the song she sings at the end as a kind of through, a theme throughout the score. And then for the very last minute, I trigger an MP3 of the final seconds of the song. Hmm. And I've got to the point now where I can synchronize it quite well with her mouth. I don't do it through the whole song because it's too long. It's like four minutes long. Right. So I just, I trigger it when she's shot. So it's a bit like as she's dying, suddenly her voice is released. It, you know, in a live show, it's quite, quite effective. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of these films I know, and I know you've released, uh, or that you're on the uh, Blu-ray or DVD releases of them. And then other ones were not familiar to me. Um, let's talk about some of those, like the Firstborn, which is I think the first cut on the 
on the CD or CD album. What I don't know. What do the kids call them yeah. these days? Uh, <laughs> the Firstborn is uh, a film directed by Miles Mander, who's sort of better known as a kind of character actor of the late silent early sound era. He was like your archetypal British cad. That's the that's his typical character. He, but he was also a, a writer. This was a film that he made of a play that he'd written. And uh, but the screenplay is co-written by Alma Revel, Hitchcock's wife. And uh, it's interesting. It does have some very Hitchcockian visual touches. So it's, it's you know it's nice to think that maybe Alma Revel had a part to play in that. Right. And yeah, it was, it was restored by the BFI um, and presented at the London Film Festival in 2011. Each year they have what they call their archive gala, which is usually a restoration of a British silent film. So I was commissioned to write a score for that. And so, the, yeah, the main theme of the opening track is the main theme of my score for the, for the firstborn. It's in my mind associated with the, the heroine um, played by Madeleine Carroll. I would say it has a kind of yearning quality, uh, hopefully. In in the score, it's played by um, an oboe. Obviously, you've got it on piano here, but she's a she's the heroine is someone who is constantly chasing after um, an unworthy husband who sort of represents some kind of dream to her that's obviously false. So I think the melody is meant to have that kind of yearning, sort of unresolved quality. What are some others that seem really interesting to you? Well, the two tracks from my score for The Manxman, Hitchcock's The Manxman, which I think is a very underrated film. Quite frustratingly, both the scores for The Manxman and The Firstborn um, have not gone on DVD. Uh, it's, It's... to do with rights issues right. regarding the film and the BFI. But uh, again, the Hitchcock connection with the firstborn, uh, that was a score that I wrote for the following year's London Film Festival. And uh, it stars Annie Andra. The first track is sort of, it's meant to be evocative of the, the, the sea around the Isle of Man. It's got that kind of tempestuous quality. And um, the third track is the love theme, um, again inspired by the character played by Annie Andra. The full score is very folkloric. It includes some songs of the Isle of Man into the score. So hopefully one day it will be recorded and everyone can hear the yeah. full thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, 
a film that uh, not many people know, but I've, I've seen because I, I bought a DVD from Czechoslovakia, Tonka of the Gallows, right. which is a beautiful, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, moving sort of, uh, reminded me a little of something like Sunrise, uh, film yep. of the uh, very late silent period. And mm. first of all, you see, where'd you play for that? Play live for it? Uh, yeah, just live. Uh, San Francisco again. Okay. And subsequently at um, uh, London Cinema, the Phoenix Cinema in, in North London. Just the two times. But I, uh, I have the theme which is associated with uh, the main character. And what's, what's uh, it like? Well, <laughs> kind of... Almost like the first one, um, the Italian's character has a very yearning quality. Uh, it's one of the films where the principal character you know, is heartbreakingly optimistic, despite you know everything that life throws at her. Right. And um, you know, even down to the last scene, I'm sure you remember where she, as she's dying, she kind of visualizes the wedding that she should have had. Yeah. Um, and was reunited with her mother yeah, in some kind of alternative reality. another film actually that was an interesting one to accompany live because it was a film released with a synchronized track uh, music and sound right. effects so you know it's a, probably a bit of a contentious issue as to whether you should show it with with live music but um i think it works fine but there are two songs in it um so there in san francisco with the, they've got this great sound guy Gary Hobish, and um, we worked out how to cue up the song on the soundtrack. So I would stop playing in those two sequences, which yeah, adds a nice bit of drama as well, you know, for, for the live show. Right. Suddenly you've got the kind of localized sound of the piano in the corner of the room, and then the voice comes through the PA. Yeah. Now, Manuel Montan. Uh, is an interesting one in contrast to most of the others in that it's it's a bit of an avant-garde film. I mean, it's again yeah. a story of a of a woman and sort of her sad and tragic life in in very silent film terms. But it has aspects of rapid cutting and things like that to it. So, how does that yeah. score come out? Um, again, that's a film I've accompanied live. I think only two or three times. I wouldn't say that I have a, like a fully notated score. I've, I've got a lot of bits of music that I've used in that. Um, although it's an avant-garde film, it's also very emotional. It has a very clearly uh, comprehensible narrative. Yeah. It, and uh, it's very uh, powerful. Um, you know, when you're, it's very relatable. Um, so uh, my my overall principle when accompanying silent films is to play what I see. So the avant-garde, the avant-garde uh, 
rapid cutting scenes, I will play in a kind of avant-garde rapid way. But the scene that is um, relates to the piece of music on the album is seen with an extended close-up on the face of the heroine, uh, which is a fairly heartbreaking scene. So that's the piece of music that accompanied that scene. One that's not about a uh, screen siren, so far as I can tell, at least from my memory of it, is uh, Visage d'Enfant, or Faces of yep. Children, as as it says on the DVD I have. Um, yep. Tell me about that. Again, it's a film I've accompanied two or three times, so not a note, fully notated score. Also, when I, when I play for films just as a soloist, as opposed to an ensemble, composing for an ensemble, then I, I tend to not notate what I've done because I don't know, need to. It's all in my head. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. It's not a, it's not a, there are female characters, but it's principally about the boy. So that's one of the exceptions that proves the rule. It ties into the, the album in the sense that I, I think it's a very haunting film. And that's another connecting thread, this sort of idea of, films that haunt you yeah. after you finish watching them. And uh, I think the thing that I found most haunting about that film was the, the portrayal of a child trying to come to terms with grief, sort of too young to sort of really understand what was going on. So, act, you know, acting out in response to that, like the early scene where he sees his father crying at the funeral, I think it was very sort of prescient of... Um, the bicycle thieves, the last shot of the bicycle thieves. Um, both you know, the boys looking up at his father and right. sees him crying above him. Um, so I've always found that very haunting. But yeah, and the way the father kind of moves on rapidly, and the boy is left behind, still dealing with his grief. Yeah. Um, so I find that's very haunting. Um, the piece of music is, is actually, it's not like a score for the film. It's, it's a piece that was inspired by the, the the climax of the film where he's sort of staring into the water and wondering whether to throw himself in and commit suicide or not and it's got that kind of it's intended to have that kind of propulsive quality while at the same time being um, you know quite melancholy <laughs> Yeah, these are all really cheerful. Um, do, you yeah, have a, I know. do you have a uh, an album of uh, comedy themes coming out after this? Uh, 
Well, I mean, I, I was thinking about that, yes, because yeah, you know, when I sort of realised that I had my comfort zone. Um, one thing I talk about in the Silent London uh, piece that I wrote is that uh, in my day-to-day job um, as a silent film accompanist, you know, I'm playing in all different styles. Yeah, like uh, on on this Sunday, I'll be playing for Nell Gwyn, oh, which is basically a restoration romp. Yeah. Which uh, is very comic. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that one. I've seen Madame Pompadour, but not Nell Gwynn, yeah. unfortunately. It's sort of in that, yeah, in that genre. Um, but yeah, as, as a jobbing silent film pianist, I wouldn't have a style. Uh, I play what I see, so I play comic music for comic films. Uh, yeah. You know, across the, the genres, that's, I, I think it's, an advantage for a silent film musician to be a little bit anonymous or, you know, like a chameleon. Right. So it's just the, the pieces that came to me as being strongest tended to have this style. But I, uh, that's a long answer to, your, answer to your question, which is that I think the next album should be, have at least a, a variety of styles. But no, this is nice in that it's, you know, it, it speaks to what I think a lot of us find strongest about silent drama is that total immersion in the emotionality of a character, of a great face, a uh, Louise Brooks or a Falconetti or whoever, Iterina. Yeah. It's certainly one of the things that, that takes us takes us away the most. I mean, you have Stella Dallas on here too. I mean, another uh, that's a, a Hollywood melodrama, but it, kind of in that same vein of, you know, big emotionality for sure yeah well i think uh i think there was something inherently moving about silent film even when it's comedy <laughs> um i just think there's something about watching these careless artists who you know died 100 years ago communicating across yeah. the decades um in, you know in the dark cinema hopefully with live music and it's just something very uh, transforming about the experience, at least when it's good. Um, so I don't, yeah, I shouldn't be afraid of emotion. <laughs> but yes, I would like to do something a bit with a bit more <laughs> variety next time. <laughs> well, it's it's a nice it's a nice collection. I enjoyed listening to it through the other day. Um, so uh, it's funny. I just talked to Marianne Lewinsky about uh, to do kind of a preview of. Uh, Bologna, uh, which mm-hmm. I know you're, you're going to, but by the time people hear this, you'll have been there and back. So how was Bologna this year? <laughs> no. How was Bologna? Yeah. Um, assuming that I get there. Um, right. Sure yeah, she told me you had some issues with the COVID-related screening, yeah. you know, quarantine, whatever. Yeah. It's all, it's very fluid, as I'm sure it is in America. You know, yeah. things can change. Oh, you know, within hours. Um, and what happened was, uh, I was booked for the whole week, and then because of the high incidence of um, the Delta variant in the UK, suddenly uh, people transiting through Britain would have to quarantine for five days. Yeah. Unless we were there for a specific, for, for the purposes of work, with a, with an official invitation, which fortunately I had, but only for 120 hours five days yeah. um, so I'm sort of and then there was this trouble to get flights and then they, the flights got cancelled because 
Brits were cancelling their trips. And sure. Now I've, I've got flights sort of leaving at like five in the morning, and you know, the second one, the, the return leaves five minutes before the 120 hours have elapsed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fantastic, unique festival. Anything in particular that you're playing for that you're looking forward to? Um, <laughs> or you I, don't know. Well, I do know, I've, but I've only just got my list of films. To be honest. Okay. Um, a lot of shorts, oh, okay. programs of shorts. Marianne is a uh, genius at putting together programs of shorts from like 100 years ago and 110 years ago. There's a serial that they're showing, which I'm looking forward to. I, unfortunately, I can't remember the name. Um but it's, I think it's spread over five parts. Each one is, uh, is feature length. Uh, French serial, uh, and it looks completely uh, mad. <laughs> okay. So that should be fun. That was Stephen Horn's music for, I'll try not to butcher this, L'Hirondelle et la Mésange by André Antoine. And the name of that serial he was playing for at Bologna is Belfegor from 1927. His release Silent Sirens is available now on all the usual music sites online and is also out on CD from Ulysses Arts. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Ben Modell, Andrew A. Arish, and Stephen Horn, and to Jackie Wilson at University Press of Kentucky. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. <clears throat> Pardon, you, uh, you rang, sir? Who, me? Yes. Why, my dear fellow, what is there here to ring with? Pardon, sir, that's just a figure of speech. Oh, oh, uh-huh.